Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, and to get exclusive access to new vodcasts every week, which are packed with history, current affairs and a whole lot more, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Those buildings, they have a power, they have an atmosphere and it affects me. In this episode, England and Scotland are brought together in union. After fighting like cat and dog down through history, the couple who had shared a monarch for the last century, in 1707, they were finally brought together. And by the pen, not the sword, the independent parliaments of Scotland and England were united. A prosperous future was promised, and the Act of Union came into force. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me, and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last podcast, we stepped ashore in Somerset with a swashbuckling duke and joined his pitchfork rebellion. Where are we now? This week, we're at a pivotal moment in the politics of the Long Island. The day when Scotland, the country I was born and brought up in, was united with its neighbour, your homeland, Paul, England. We're in a place that has played a part in so much of Scottish history. And when the Act of Union came into force, the bells at St Giles here in Edinburgh rang out with the tune, Why am I so sad on this my wedding day? We're looking at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. It's such a prominent building. Anyone who's been up for, say, the the Edinburgh Festival, if you're on the Royal Mile, you'll have walked up and down past St Giles Cathedral. Big, grand, quite imposing building beside the Royal Mile. It's called St Giles Cathedral, but of course, um, cathedral refers to the seat of the bishop. And 
ever since Reformation, the Scots Presbyterian Kirk didn't have bishops. So the, the name's a kind of an anachronism. So although the building is St Giles Cathedral because it predates the Reformation, it's usually referred to say as like the High Kirk or the High Church. It's the preeminent church in the city. But there's no there's no bishop there. Ah, but it's one of the most important, powerful buildings within the church. Uh, if you like, yeah. I mean, it's 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 referred to as the High Kirk. Some people call it the Mother Church of Presbyterianism. So it is a focal point for the Presbyterian faith. But it's been there best part of a thousand years. So it's seen them come and it's seen them go. And for a long time, it looked very different inside. It was partitioned up into smaller rooms. Then the big spacious grandeur was re-established. It's been through various looks and various styles. Do you personally like the architecture? I'll be honest with you, I don't find it the most attractive building. But I'm drawn to it because it has been such a... It's like the seat of a fire. It's a central point around which so much history has revolved. It means something. In the context of the love letter to the British Isles, it's emblematic for me of the coming together of Scotland and England in union in 1707. Now, it doesn't do that for everyone. It's not in the history books for that reason. But we'll get to it. There is a reason why it says something to me about the nature of that coming together of the two countries in 1707. For me, you can't look at the British Isles, you can't do a love letter to the British Isles without, of course, looking at the marriage of Scotland and England. There's just no getting away from it. It's just one of those moments. The crowns came together when Elizabeth I died without an heir, well, without a blood heir. The crown went to James VI of Scotland and he became James I of England. And in that moment, for the first time, one royal bottom effectively sat on both thrones or wore both crowns. So the crowns were united. That was in 1603. So there was a union of sorts in that there was one monarch reigning over England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. But it wasn't until 1707 that the parliaments came together as one. So even after the crowns were united, Scotland still had an independent parliament and the members of that parliament were still making independent decisions about Scotland on Scotland's behalf. And there was a separate English parliament and they, they operated independently of one another for more than a hundred years after the coming together of the crowns. But there's just something incredibly, I would have to say poignant, about the coming together of Scotland and England. The marriage ceremony, if you like, if there could be such a thing, was on May Day 1707. And it was a, in terms of weddings, it was a sad one. The bride, let's say, was Scotland, and the bride was poor. You might say she couldn't afford a dress. And the groom was similarly unexcited about the prospect because he was he knew absolutely that he was just being married for his money. And that was the truth of it. The coming together was about money, really. And the coming together wouldn't have happened 
had not Scotland at that moment been so poor. Effectively, what happened was basically some paperwork was filled out. If it was a wedding, it was a registry office due. <laughs> there, was no, there was no glamour. It was pretty perfunctory. And it was by a stroke of the pen, rather than a stroke of the sword, that what had been the independent, separate parliaments of England and Scotland were done away with. Each one ceased to be, and in their place was conjured into being one parliament. For both. So now there was a united parliament representing the whole country. And it, it was definitely a poignant occasion. At the time, the majority of Scots and the majority of English didn't want it. It didn't sound like a good idea because these were populations that had inherited the belief that they were, you know, they had always been at each other's throats, Scotland and England. And, and so for the general population, there was an atmosphere of, what? How can that be? How can that be happening? We don't get on. You know, they're the neighbours from hell. Both people, both populations had been raised to think that. And then all at once, they had to get used to the idea that dad had married someone they didn't like. Or mum had married someone they didn't like. It was a, it was an unhappy coming together, but it did happen. There's just no getting away from it because at the time, in the early years of the 18th century, the early 1700s, Scotland was broke. The last decade of the 17th century, the 1690s, had been bad. There were seven bad harvests in a row. They were known as the ill years. So people were going hungry because the crops had been poor. The crops had been bad. And it was in that atmosphere of trouble and, and hunger and ill years that the Darien project was attempted. It was an attempt to establish a Scottish colony in Panama, in Central America. You know, by this point, lots of the European countries had well-established colonies in the Americas. Spain had been at it for years. England had her colonies in North America and Scotland, some in Scotland, wanted to get in amongst the action. And the Darien in Panama, it's a very narrow strip of land that separates the Atlantic Ocean from the Pacific. And the dream was to go there, get established there and create a, a canal, create an opening, a shortcut between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. And the feeling was that Scotland would have been able to control the trade moving back and forth through that new opening and would have got rich on the proceeds. It was a good idea. In principle, it did sound like a way to get rich, but it was the execution of the scheme, as is so often the case, that was disastrous. The Scots with money, all sorts, from the great and the good down to the just moderately wealthy were persuaded to invest this exciting scheme offer up as much money as you've got get in now, get in at the ground floor you're going to be rich and by the time the ships set sail something between a quarter and a half of all the liquid capital in Scotland was committed to Darien Wow I, I, Imagine it, maybe as much as a half of all the coins and notes <laughs> were, were committed to making Darien a success and so the ships sailed, and between 1698 and 1700, the last two years of, of the 17th century, they tried to get themselves established, and it was a disaster, almost without equal. They had no idea of the conditions that they were going to end up in. They went out there with wigs and woolen clothes, 
and they ended up in a fly-blown malarial swamp, disease-ridden. All the wrong clothes, all the wrong gear for the conditions. You know, we know what Central America's like. The heat is just... It was nothing like these people had ever experienced or encountered before. And there they were with their powdered wigs and their woolen trousers. And then the disease set in. Malaria, amongst, amongst other things. Every insect with teeth was at them. Uh, and misery ensued. All the money was lost. Every last penny. Along with uncounted hundreds of lives. They just perished. It was an absolute unmitigated disaster. And so, at a stroke, Scotland was broke, bankrupt. Half the money was had gone down the toilet in Darien, literally. And so England obviously looked on at this. England had watched, because there was a, a bit of suspicion anyway, because having control over international trade is, is a very significant bit of power. And so they had watched whether Scotland were going to make a go of this or not. And it was fascinating for the English, amongst others, when the Scottish attempt to set up this colony was so disastrous. And it's fair to say that at the time, in the early years of the the 1700s, the English were just on the lookout for a final solution to what they regarded as the Scottish problem. Scotland had been a thorn in the side of England for all the reasons that everyone understands, just years of bad feeling. In 1688, there was there had been the Glorious Revolution, and that was when James II, who was King of Scotland and King of England together, he was ousted bloodlessly from the throne. It was like a bloodless coup, there was no violence. And he was replaced by his daughter, Mary, who was Protestant, and her husband, who was William of Orange. So that's the time of William and Mary. They reigned, but they were childless. They didn't have any heirs. This is always a, you know, this is a, a perennial problem for monarchs. If you don't produce an heir, there's complications, to put it mildly. Uh, so when their time was passed, they were succeeded by James's younger daughter, Mary's younger sister, Anne. And she was a steward, like James, like Charles I, Charles II. She was a steward, uh, but she was also Protestant. And she had 18 pregnancies in her life and not one of them survived into adulthood. She had one son towards the end of her attempt at a family who lived to be about 11, I think, and then he died as well. So, I mean, imagine it, she had 18 pregnancies and none of them produced a healthy adult child. To think of the emotional and physical toll that that would have taken on a human being, really, it, it hardly bears thinking about. But nonetheless, queen she was and it was her responsibility to sort out what would happen after her time was passed after she died so by 1700 the last of her children was gone and at that point it meant that her heir was her younger half brother now he was James Francis Edward Stuart another Stuart now he is the old pretender but at that time in that moment in history he was heir to Anne. And that was problematic because he was Catholic. She was Protestant, England was Protestant, Scotland was Protestant. And the spectre of, of returning a Catholic to the throne was not something that anybody could contemplate. So there was all sorts of dashing around the courts of Europe looking for a solution. What were they, you know, how are they, how are they going to get around this? And the solution that they came to was that rather than risk having a Catholic on the throne, rather than 
and dying and being replaced by the old pretender, James Francis Edward Stewart, they alighted upon a relative of Anne's, Sophia, Electress of Hanover. That's one of those grand titles. Now, she was a granddaughter of James VI and I. It gets complicated, but bear with me. It's complicated stuff. So she's the granddaughter of James VI and I. He was the, he was the one who had replaced Elizabeth on the throne. So she's a granddaughter. And she's Protestant, and she's a Stuart, and she's got a Protestant son, more to the point, George. Now, he's the George that becomes George I. So he ticks a lot of boxes that, frankly, James Francis Edward Stuart does not. Primarily, above everything else, he's a Protestant. Word was Anne couldn't bear them. She could hardly stand to be in the same room as Sophia and George, for whatever personal reasons. But nonetheless, he, he fitted the bill... And so, by the Act of Settlement, legal papers, 1701, it was agreed that George, when Anne's time was passed, George would replace Anne on the throne. And the, the news was just perfunctorily delivered to the Scots. They hadn't even been consulted, because, of course, whoever becomes King of England is simultaneously the King of Scotland. And nobody involved the Scots in any of this. They were just handed a fait accompli. So they made it pretty plain that they were not impressed. But the truth was... The majority of Scots at that time didn't want a Catholic back on the throne either. So they felt entitled to huff and puff about the fact that they hadn't been asked and they hadn't been consulted, but the truth of it was they, at that point, they didn't want James Francis Edward Stewart either, or not a majority anyway. And so they huffed and puffed about it, but the fact that it was a continuation of a, of a Protestant monarch was on the cards really was enough. So, there's all of that going on, the fact that the choice is always going to favour a Protestant. But there were also those sort of cooler heads in Scotland who, who were weighing up the options. After the ill years of the 1690s, after the disaster of the Darien Project, Scotland's financial situation was pretty bleak. And they realised, a lot of Scots realised, that if they could somehow get into bed with England and get access to what had previously been an exclusive bit of international trade that only the English were allowed to be taken advantage of, then there was money to be made. As long as Scotland remained an independent country with its own parliament, Scotland couldn't get in on the action, couldn't take part, couldn't share in the profits to be made from England's colonies. So there were lots of Scots, well-heeled Scots, who'd taken a real hit in Darien who thought, we can regain the lost ground if we can go along with Scotland and England coming together in some formal way. And the lid was put on it by the fact that English money was sent north. Lots of English Machiavellian types were well aware of, of the dire straits that many of the previously wealthy of Scotland, what had happened to them on account of losing everything on Darien. So word got around that if they would support the dissolution of the Scottish Parliament and the coming together of an English and Scottish united Parliament, then there was money in it for them. So English silver and English gold were funnelled north into the hands of the people that could make the difference, tip the decision the way that was wanted. So sure enough, the Scottish Privy Council proclaimed the formal dissolution of the Scottish Parliament on the 28th of April 1707 and a similar uh, bit of paperwork was, was filled in and signed in England and 
The days of the two separate parliaments were over, and now there was one united parliament of Great Britain. And you know, Scotland was very poorly represented in the new parliament. That was an absolute fact. England had a massive majority of the MPs. But nonetheless, too many people in Scotland who had lost too much had decided that enough was enough, and whatever the price was that they had to pay, they were ready to pay it to get their money back. And so there it was. And the reason, after all of that convoluted, you know, all those convoluted machinations and the politicking of of powerful people, the part played by St Giles Cathedral comes in. The announcement was made. It becomes a public fact on May Day, 1707. And as the Act of Union was coming into force, the carillon bells in St Giles Cathedral, this is a new mechanism that lets bells play together. It's a, it's a clever bit of kit. And the carillon bells in the spire of St Giles Cathedral played an old Scottish folk tune called Why Am I So Sad on This My Wedding Day? And I find that I find that very poignant, that the music that was chosen, if you like, for the background music of the coming together, the union of Scotland and England, was Why Am I So Sad on This My Wedding Day? If that wasn't a foretaste of what lay ahead in the future, then I, I don't know what was. Was it a pointed choice? Well, maybe it was a, maybe it was a, yeah. Why, why else? Why would they choose it? Why would they choose it on that day of all days? That was the, that was the tune that was played because th- th- there was recognition. There was recognition that the, at the time, the vast majority of Scottish and English people didn't want anything to do with an act of union. It was unpopular, and that sympathy was simply being expressed in that choice of music. So that brings us to St Giles, and and you know there it sits. Anyone that's walked up or down the Royal Mile, you've walked past St Giles. There's various strangenesses about it. If if you walk past the near the west door, set into the cobbles, there's a, a heart-shaped pattern. It's about I don't know. It's about three or four foot across. Just a little heart-shaped picked out in the cobbles and it's known as the heart of Midlothian and it it marks what was previously the toll booth uh, and it's a place of execution so it's where prisoners were brought to be dispatched in public and if you walk past it on a typical day you'll see that people have spat on it there's always little gobs of saliva on the heart of Midlothian because people traditionally walk past and spit on it because it it was a place of killing a place of execution and so the, the heart of Midlothian usually has, is usually, is usually fairly healthily spattered with spittle. Well, still to this day. Still to this day, yeah. Most days, most days when you go past it, you'll see it. And it's also quite close by, very close by Old Parliament House or Parliament House, which is where the, the, the Scottish Parliament sat. So all in all, I've often gone past, I've often been outside or inside St Giles Cathedral and I've thought about that day. I've thought about what it must have felt like to be there on the on the first of May, this momentous occasion, and to have heard the carillon bells playing Why Am I So Sad on This My Wedding Day. So, like I said before, cathedral's an, an outdated word really in terms of that building because it's it, you know it's no longer where the bishop sits because it's a reformed church, a Presbyterian church. During the medieval times, medieval years, Scotland's kings and queens would have attended mass in St Giles at public occasions. Mary Queen of Scots, by the time she came back home, she was she grew up in France. 
uh, and she came back to Scotland to be Queen of Scots in 1561 and of course by then Scotland, she was Catholic but Scotland was Protestant so she didn't go anywhere near St Giles, not if she could avoid it but her son, who of course became James VI, James I of England and he was a regular, he was a very religious person, he was clever, a very clever man, learned in matters theological and he liked to, to go to the St Giles and heckle the <laughs> heckle heckle whoever was in there giving <laughs> sermons, you know, because he, he knew his stuff. And it was uh, it was in St Giles in 1637 that that Charles the First, who was James the Sixth son, uh, made the first attempt to foist his new prayer book, his new book of common prayer on the Scots. And that was where that old woman uh, waited till the minister started preaching from it, and then she stood up, Jenny, and picked up her wooden stool and flung it at him, and said, "Who's saying mass in my ear?" in a reference to the perceived sort of popery of the English way of worshipping at that time. Alexander Henderson, he was one of those who had composed the National Covenant of Scotland that we've, that we've already discussed, which was that, that legal document that swore the people of Scotland to a personal relationship with God in defiance of, of everything that King Charles I was trying to impose upon them. So Alexander Henderson was one of the the, the authors, he was one of those that put together the National Covenant and he after that time became a minister at St Giles uh, James Graham who's a legend of Scottish history, first Marquis of uh, Montrose he was a, a, an, an early signatory of the Covenant defying King Charles but later on he changed sides and became a royalist and he fought on behalf of the King during the Civil War and James Graham was captured and he was executed outside the toll booth of St Giles in 1650. By that time, of course, Charles was dead. The king that he had fought for, he had been butchered on another block elsewhere. And there's fantastic reports. I mean, when, when, any time you're anywhere near St Giles, I mean, just have this in your mind's eye. When James Graham was brought out to be executed, the witnesses said he was dressed like a bridegroom. He was wearing a black suit, fitted black suit, and a scarlet cloak with ribbons on his shoes. Imagine spending the night in the condemned cell, knowing that you're going out into the street to be beheaded in front of the general jeering public and taking the time to get all dressed up in your best gear. I imagine having the, the mental strength. I mean, I, I imagine I would just be... <laughs> I imagine getting, you know, crawling out on my hands and knees, you know, if, if that was the fate that was about to befall me. But James Graham came out dressed, as they said, like a, like a bridegroom. And do you know how he had spent some of his last night composing a poem? And before he was dispatched, he recited a poem which had, amongst other words, Open all my veins that I may swim to thee, my saviour, in that crimson lake. As class. I mean, you've got to, whatever you think of, whatever you think of the side that he was fighting on, that, that takes a bit of doing, you know, to face your execution you know, in your best clothes and then to stand and recite a poem that you've composed the night before. I think that's, uh, I think that's class. And when he had been fighting on behalf of the king, his great opponent in Scotland had been Archibald Graham, who was first Marquis of Argyll. And so while Montrose was in charge of a royalist force, Archibald Campbell led the Covenanter army. was the time of Cromwell, the time of the Commonwealth, but when Charles II was restored, the restoration, when he came back to the throne in 1660, he ordered a state funeral for Graham, 
for James Gray and Marcus of Montrose, and that was held in St Giles, you know, long after his death. And Argyll, by contrast, was then charged with treason, and he was beheaded on the same spot. So by the end of it all, both had been parted from their heads by different despots for different reasons. And if you go in now, if you go into the cathedral, like I say, it's it's far more impressive. I would say it has far more to say to the spirit and to the imagination inside than out. Uh, and it, what's there now is, is part of relatively recent restorations uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries. Over time, it had been sort of broken up, partitioned into lots of little spaces. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was all opened up again into the massive space that had been you know, envisaged by the original medieval architects. And then during the Victorian time, uh, th- there were attempts made to sort of, I don't know, ease the pain of all those civil war years, all those horrors of the of the covenanting times. So Montrose was gifted, you would say, a, a, an ornate monument inside St Giles. So this this man that had been you know beheaded outside the church, and now a, suddenly a new ornate memorial was created for him. And then not long after that, something similar was put up for Argyle. So those two men that had been on opposite sides that had both ended up being beheaded are memorialised inside St Giles Cathedral by ornate stonework. It's just, for me, it symbolises, I suppose, something about the coming together of Scotland and England in 1707, primarily because of you know that choice to play that, that lament, why am I so sad on this my wedding day, which, given the, the present climate, people in Scotland again arguing the toss about whether or not Scotland should be an independent country and it's it's all angry again even after 300 years there's something pertinent and poignant about that choice of music all those years ago and it's simply a place worth seeing St Giles it has been and remains for for many people a, a beating heart it's a beating heart right on the high ground overlooking the rest of Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh. It's fascinating that some buildings have such deep roots into history with so much to say, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the cathedrals in particular, I've visited them all over. You know, I've visited um, St Magnus Cathedral in Kirkwall in Orkney. I think that's the most northerly (laughs) British cathedral I've been in. And I've been in cathedrals all over the country. And I find them very affecting places. And yes, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're so old. And I've, I've said before, I mean, when we talked about Durham Cathedral, we had a love letter from Durham. A building raised a thousand years ago still has the power to make you feel small, which Durham and many of the cathedrals do. I, I think that's impressive, in our 21st century world where we're, we're used to like the Shard in London and the gigantic buildings that have been raised in the Middle East, uh, the Burj Khalifa, you know, these gigantic structures, thousands of feet high, that you walk in on a much smaller building that was built a thousand years ago, but something to do with the, the ambitions of the architects and their, their sense of perspective and their sense of proportion means that those buildings a thousand years old still make you feel the way you were meant to be made to feel, which is put in your place, you know, kneel before the majesty of it. And all cathedrals, all cathedrals have that for me, that even after centuries, even after a thousand years, they still have that power. You know, you go to Notre Dame or you go to 
Sacre Coeur, or you go, you go to cathedrals all over, all over Europe, and they have, for me, they exert a power. And so, yes, part of what's impressive in St Giles is just knowing that you're in there with a building that has meant something to uncounted hundreds of thousands of people for the best part of a thousand years. And I think that leaves a residue or an atmosphere that's palpable. Whether you're religious or not, if you're religious, then it'll have that impact on you, I'm sure. But even if not, those buildings, they have a power, they have an atmosphere, and it affects me. That's all I can say. Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender, strides onto the bloody historical stage. In the midst of a pan-European civil war, he was determined to claim the British crown by force. Backed by France, he lands in Scotland. The Jacobite rebellion gains momentum, meeting its decisive climactic moment at the Battle of Culloden. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.